0: Hello, Kégoire. How, how are you doing? Doing pretty well, thank you. How are things with you? Uh, I'm okay, thank you. So, are you back from vacation? Uh, what vacation? Yeah, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm back from... The a f- mandatory August vacation August for
1: therapists. August vacation for therapists? You don't know about that? Well, in my case, it was a, a couple of long weekends for me.
0: Yeah. I see.
1: <laughs> Why do we have to go on vacation on August?
0: We do as God intended, okay? Yeah, I guess. Don't ask questions. (laughs) (laughs) I think you had a vacation, a real one. I went to France and it was uh, very good. I uh, successfully managed to not get COVID there. It is work to make sure you don't get COVID. <laughs> Especially the long flights. Yeah, the airport to keep your mask on for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't know if you remember guy. at the end of the last podcast, we said that this was the last podcast on social. The last podcast on the social. I think we lied. Yeah. Not intentionally, but I think we lied. Because today's podcast is going to be on, guess what? I guess the social again. <laughs> You guessed right. You're so good. (sighs) So today's podcast is actually an interview Mm -hmm. that we recorded, you and I, with Catherine Silver, who is one of my supervisors Mm -hmm. on... The social and psychoanalysis. Correct. So Catherine Silver is actually a senior faculty member and supervisor at NPAP. She's also a social relational psychoanalyst who has been practicing for many years, working with individuals and families from a variety of societies and cultures. She was first trained as a sociologist at Sorbonne in Paris and Columbia University in New York City. She has published books and articles on the intersection between society, culture, and the self. She is now working on an article about the functions of negativity in clinical work, as well as revisiting the work of an early psychoanalytic rebel, Eric Fromm. Mm-hmm. And to put it a lot more simply, she's my supervisor. Therefore, we invited her because that's what we do in discussions <laughs> on psychoanalysis. <laughs> We have a very strong network of people we can invite and talk to. So after Lee, now Catherine. Your supervisor as well. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I'm <laughs> I'm reaching very far. Yes. <laughs> as everyone can hear. Anyway, it's an interesting interview. There are going to be two of them mm-hmm. that we uh, split into two podcasts. Mm,
1: correct. And as you said, we had lied about the, not intentionally, Again? Not intentionally. About the social, because Catherine describes herself as a
0: social-relational psychoanalyst. If you have any questions, comments, let us know. You can reach us directly to discussions on psychoanalysis at pm.me. Or
1: check our Facebook page. Discussions on psychoanalysis, also
0: SoundCloud and iTunes. My name is Grégoire Pierre. And this is
1: Edgar Francisco Danielson.
0: Welcome to discussions on psychoanalysis.
1: Catherine, you heard Gregoire and me referring to you as a psychoanalyst. But as we know, identities are very complex. And what does it mean to you when you refer to yourself as a psychoanalyst?
2: I never use the term psychoanalyst. I said I am a social relational psychoanalyst. Mm. So I specify right away that I have a kind of interest in combining the social and the Mm psychic.
1: Is that something that you experienced or saw in other people uh, while you were training? Or is this something that came from you as a way of identifying personally?
2: It's rather not recent, but when I was being trained, I would call myself a in-training psychoanalyst. Later on, mm-hmm. because of the frictions between sociology and psychoanalysis, I would not call myself a psychoanalyst, but a psychotherapist. Mm-hmm. Because of the conflict between the two disciplines, psychoanalysts are not seen as legitimate.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Psychotherapists are more mild and accepted. Mm-hmm. So my definition of a psychoanalyst came only later on in my career when I felt comfortable being called a psychoanalyst. But then I realized that there are so many types of psychoanalysts that I wanted to make it clear that my orientation was one which was a social relational psychoanalyst.
1: You have mentioned sociology, you have mentioned relational, you have mentioned friction. So it seems that there were many forces and influences somehow molding who you are at this point in time. Right. So where do you come from in terms of this academic and strands of knowledge? What I mean is your interest in sociology led you to psychoanalysis, psychoanalysis to sociology, or it was something completely different. What were the major personal and social influences?
2: I started with the social influences, which came first in my case. hmm. In France, I went to the Sorbonne to get a Master in Sociology and a Diplôme d'Études Supérieures, then got a Guggenheim Fellowship to come to the United States to study Sociology, and I went to Columbia and got a PhD in Sociology. So I was a Sociologist 100%, and started teaching Sociology both at Brooklyn College and then at the Graduate Center. Now, After a few years teaching sociology, I became dissatisfied with the field because the field, intellectually fascinating, but somehow the focus is only on structures, institutions, ideologies with little ideas regarding the individual personalities and psychic needs. So at that point, I decided to get trained and I had a double career. I continued to be a sociologist, but I was also trained as a psychoanalyst. And the personal factors came in because at that point in my life, I was going through a personal transition.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I was fighting with issues of identity, issues of self-worth, issues of, you know, who am I? What do I want? And uh, it were issues that I thought could be best answered by being psychoanalyzed. But unlike many of the people, I did not have the income to afford a real psychoanalyst. So if you go into training, you get a better deal. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, I went into training in part because I wanted the training, but also because it was an easy way to get help. But I got then hooked up yes. and uh, I decided that psychoanalysis had something to offer that was very important.
1: What I hear you saying is that becoming a psychoanalyst was overly determined right. by a series of personal desires, personal forces, and also what you were seeing in the sociology field. That's correct. Therefore, you went into training for these various reasons that you have mentioned. How was your training in general? How do you categorize or somehow put into a few words what the training was for you?
2: Well, if you ask me to go back to the time when I started being trained, I did not know enough to really understand what was going on. Mm-hmm. I was happy to be accepted. I was happy to take courses. I was happy to read new stuff without realizing that the institute where I went was a sect-like institute. It did not really have links to institution outside itself, universities, research you know, places. Yes. So I felt that intellectually... It was not back order, but it was not up to what I expected. Yes. Also, the courses were very narrow in terms of there were very few courses which were interdisciplinary. Mm-hmm. So there was a kind of a letdown. Also, I thought that many of the people that were teaching were not always prepared. What I appreciated most was the people that came to be trained. The trainees were the best. <laughs> they came from a variety of fields. Yes. film. Architecture, rabbis, psychologists, linguists, I mean, they were so smart. So I learned from them more than I learned from anybody else.
0: Mm. Do you think that this was a dynamic or an issue that was specific to the institute you were training at? Or was it something that you think could be found in most, if maybe all, the training institute at the time?
2: I mean, it's a tricky question because I cannot really compare other institute. I don't know them. I just know very generally that they have issues of the same sort, but I don't know them enough to compare them. My guess is that my institute was perhaps more isolated than other institutes. I'm not quite sure why, because they have allowed non-MDs to be, or people coming out of the tri-disciplines, to be accepted. So in principle, they were much broader and much more open to social questions. But whether the functioning of the institute itself was working well enough, I am not sure. I think it was perhaps more bureaucratic than most of them.
1: One of my associations or perhaps connections to what you're saying, Catherine, is that uh, my own experience in training is that certainly I learned a lot from the readings and from some instructors, but I learned so much from the dynamics of the group, meaning my interactions with fellow candidates. What we were reading was crystallizing in the room between us candidates. I'm not sure how to take that, Edgar. Well, you were one of those. I know. So, yeah, <laughs> but to see how all, all
0: what we read resonates during in the classroom <laughs> sitting. Oh, might not goodness. be for the yeah. best all the time. <laughs>
1: So, Catherine, you came into training without, it happens with many of us, you didn't know exactly what you were going to face as a candidate.
2: I knew the basics because you look at the catalog, you know, the courses which are offered. Yes. You know that broad is, you know, always a starting point. Uh, You know that uh, there are some uh, importance in doing clinical work. You know that you have to do your own personal analysis. So all of this I knew. But what I did not know is the structure of the place and what they expected from you and whether they were really caring about what you were learning. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, I guess some things might not have changed that much.
1: Now that you are a psychoanalyst, How do you define your work orientation? And parallel question is, are you inclined to use cross-disciplinary and cross-cultural approaches in psychoanalysis?
2: Well, as I mentioned before, I define myself as a social relational psychoanalyst, which means that by definition, I am cross cultural and cross disciplinary. Mm-hmm. Cross cultural because I lived in several countries and I am comfortable with people that come from different cultures. In fact, most of my practice has been with non Americans. They have been with French, who has been with Asians, Japanese, Indian even from Iran. So many of my practice has been dealing with non-Americans. And even the Americans tend to be immigrants. So I've been dealing with mostly immigrants or non-Americans.
1: Do you have an idea why this is the case?
2: I gave them a blurb about myself, like we all do, to attract some people. And my blurb, you know, specified that I like to work with non-Americans.
1: Mm-hmm. And your choice, if you can share with the audience, why you went in that direction, why you chose to be the psychoanalyst of this kind of population, this demographics?
2: Okay, but it was their choice, not my choice. I accepted them. It felt good that they were willing to work with me as a non-American also. So it was a link that was created between us already. We had something in common. Mm-hmm. But we were all immigrants in some ways. So if not immigrants, we were living in countries away from the United States. So partly is due to chance, partly is due to their choice and it's partly to my acceptance and my feeling comfortable with them.
1: Mm-hmm. Sometimes we hear among people who would like or looking for a psychoanalyst or psychotherapist in general that they want someone they can identify with. Perhaps a fantasy underneath that desire is that this person will be able to understand me. What do you think about that?
2: Well, I am not so sure that it's a clear-cut, you know, way of seeing things. Mm -hmm. Because I have no idea why some people identify with me and others do not. I have some African-Americans who come from very poor background and they identify with me 100%. I have people that come from middle-class intellectuals who do not identify with me. Mm -hmm. So it's not about me, what I represent, but what their needs are. What is it that in their need I can respond to? What is it that I can give them that feels connected even though we are totally different. So
1: it's more complex than just saying that if you have one identity and have a similar identity that we can understand each other. It's more complex than just that.
2: At the start, it could be a wish to have somebody that understands you. Mm -hmm. But the depth of the understanding has to do with something that we don't quite know about, which has to do with emotional needs. And if you feel that your emotional needs are heard or your emotional needs are understood, you can come from a totally different culture, you will feel connected.
1: It seems that you've been working with different demographics throughout the years, many of them immigrants, some of them not. In terms of your clinical practice and working with these demographics, what are the major obstacles that you have encountered?
2: Money? Some people would like to be analyzed. They would like to take it seriously, but they cannot afford it. So the question is, why can't they afford it? Don't they have insurance? Are they unemployed? Are they unwilling to pay? So I explore that with them. And if they are unwilling to pay or if they cannot pay, we find a way of reducing the fee until they can pay. If they have insurance, then in a sense, it covers 80% of the expenses and that makes it easier for everyone to work Mm -hmm. because they get what they want and I get what I want.
1: Mm-hmm. So money has been one of the major issues that you have encountered in your practice or difficulties.
2: Well, potentially, because if they cannot afford it and they, I cannot go down as much as they want, then it doesn't work. I see. And then I referred them to somebody else. At the training Institute, we are never taught how to deal with practical issues like insurance issues. And I think it's needed. When you start, you have no idea how, or what insurance, how does it work? How do you get the best deal with them? How do you respond if they don't pay you? I mean, very practical thing that I never discussed, which I think should be discussed. Do you have
0: a sense of why those things are not taught?
2: Well, I mean, again, we can play around with different ideas. It could be because anything having to do with money makes psychoanalysts uncomfortable. It has to do perhaps with their own issues you know are they worth it are they worth that much money are they entitled to ask for that much money it may be because we need to be neutral in court and neutrality mean that you don't talk too much about issues like money because it introduces new factors that are not purely psychic
1: In prior podcasts, Grégoire and I have talked a little bit about the different experiences we've had. Uh, Grégoire from France, which has a different taxation structure. I'm from Puerto Rico, where again, there's a different way of handling money, what it means to people and what therapy means to people. So that's, from my experience, it's not only the money, but what is the value of psychotherapy or psychoanalysis. That's right. In my country, people say you go to therapy if you're crazy. But in New York City, we say you go to therapy because you don't want to get crazy, which is a different understanding of the,
2: no, you're right. the
1: therapeutic process.
2: But I think that you have to introduce the other concept of social class here. There is a tremendous yes. class variation in the way psychoanalysis is defined. For the middle class, psychoanalysis is a kind of a gift. Everybody goes into psychoanalysts. Among other groups in society, it's not. You go to your church, you go to your voodoo, mm-hmm. you go to your magician. Mm-hmm. You don't go to a psychoanalyst. Mm-hmm.
1: So that's one of the intersections between the professional field and class and socioeconomic profile. Right. Mm-hmm.
0: And why do you think?
2: Why? Because you don't trust. I mean, who are those psychoanalysts who pretend to know their psyche? Who are they? How much do they know? My church knows much better. My church will tell me what to do. My church will protect me. My church will give me help if I need to. Psychonosis, like, well, what they will do? They will listen to me. And then what? Mm. I mean, in other words, they have a different understanding of what it means and how it can be used. They, they may be wrong, and they are wrong in many ways, but that's how they think.
0: If I understand correctly, what you're pointing out is how psychoanalysis is, is not part of some milieu, some groups, that it's not something they think about.
2: Mm-hmm. There is another issue with social class because I've heard it among some of my patients, and I, I use it as a joke. Psychoanalysis is seen as a bourgeois kind of enterprise. They are comfortable, they have time to think, they have time to suffer reflect they have time to ask themselves a question. So it's a kind of a bourgeois institution. For many people who come from poorer background, they see it as a form of exploitation. Why would they need to pay anyone to do something that could be done at the community level? But for us, it's a privilege. You go to the university, you have a shrink. You go to you know friends and you talk about your analyst. It has a different cultural meaning. It doesn't mean that we're not useful. We are very useful. But uh, people come with those stereotypes.
0: Do you have a sense of what psychoanalysts or maybe psychonetic training could do to work on that?
2: I raised it in my own analysis with my own patients. I said, how do you feel about what we do? How different is it from what you would get from friends, for example? Some people say, why do I need you? I have friends I can talk to. And I talk to them and they help me. So there has to be a kind of uh, understanding that what we do has different levels, and that the levels cannot be achieved so easily. They have to involve a lot of connectedness, a lot of self-understanding, a lot of question, and a lot of willingness to open up and self-criticize. So in a sense, yes, it should be taught, if it can be taught. But I think that psychologists don't like to see themselves as representing any ideologies. Once again, they are neutral. So when I said that they represent a bourgeois ideology, many people would say, not really. And the reason why I was attracted to Eric Fromm is that he saw himself as a socialist, very involved in social responsibility. And he thought that psychoanalysis had to be involved in improving society for everyone. So that may be why I was, you know, in a sense involved with his work and his ability to understand his patients.
1: Mm-hmm. So it seems that Eric Fromm was one of the influences in your, your life and profession as a psychoanalyst. Correct. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? How you were introduced to Eric Fromm? What attracted you to his work? And in what ways you use that work?
2: I knew Eric Fromm as a sociologist first, because he's a sociologist. He got a degree in sociology and then got analyzed in a classical manner by several analysts, both in Europe and in the U.S. So when I was teaching sociology at the Graduate Center, I always taught Eric Fromm. And we were talking about authoritarianism, nationalism, political power, uh, wars. My training but we is were it. not talking about any clinical issues. It's only when I became trained as a psychoanalyst that I realized that Eric Fromm had something to say that nobody else was saying in terms of the impact of the social and the psyche. And this is where I started reading Eric Fromm and using it, but at my training institute, I did not really use it very much. I kept it kind of hidden in my mind because it didn't fit any of the courses that I was taking. Eric Fromm would have been kind of a foreign element So it's only when I became my own psychoanalyst that I started being more involved with his ideology, his conceptualization, is view of the social thing that we are social activists and that we are responsible for ourselves and for society's organization. Mm-hmm.
1: You're touching something here that reminds me of what I heard from other psychoanalysts and candidates. And it's uh, one of the major differences between the higher education system universities, let's say, mm-hmm. and institutes is that institutes prepare people to stay in the institute. We become members. Right. While people enter the university prepare formation, and then go into the world. So you were saying that Eric Fromm was not part of your training, and yet it was there in the background in your mind. Right. In a way, you were protesting. Those are my words, of course, not yours. This characterization or maybe the nature of institutes has been very self-centered or looking at themselves internally.
2: You're right. and In fact, uh, from was rejected even though he created with Allenson White the institute they both created together in 43 and he taught a few years but he was never accepted anywhere because he was so critical of the institution as not being creative enough Mm -hmm. so he created his own institute in Mexico and in Mexico he had an institute which is still working they work with candidates they get degrees in psychoanalysis but also they require work in organization in the local community Communities. Mm -hmm. So you have to go and live with local community as a psychoanalyst for a year before you get certified. Mm -hmm. So he has a very different conception of our role as psychoanalysts.
0: And how do you think that plays out in an analyst's practice to be able to have such experience?
2: Today they feel that they are very fortunate to have had the chance of both learning theories, learning the classical way of doing psychoanalysis, at the same time going to communities outside and working with them. And realizing that the problems are not just individual, but collective problems. And that they could help.
0: When I listen to you, I also think that it also brings up the fact that not everything is entirely a fantasy. Right. When we are confronted with social realities, in quote, because there are always fantasies associated to that, we can't be as free as psychoanalyst to just... Um, wonder about one individual issues and not touch where they come from what they experience right and maybe what you're describing is a way to help psychoanalysts in training and then eventually practicing to try to take their patient in a very different dimension right or to add more dimensions to what they bring that's something we've been addressing a lot in discussions on psychoanalysis. how when you practice with someone like we're doing now in New York, there are things you have to take into consideration. Things are going to play out in very different ways than if they were living in different cities, different countries, and even within New York. As we just said, when you have someone who comes from different backgrounds, right. there are different things you have to hear. Bringing psychonists in training to be more in touch with that uh, help patients feel more heard. I mean, that's-
2: right. No, I think the idea is correct. Uh, we should try to provide ways for psychoanalysts to go beyond the individual and to reach into groups and collectivities. But in order to do that, you need a new form of organization. You need new ways of reaching out, which we don't have. So you would need very kind of committed people who would want to help others find ways of learning from groups so you can teach group therapy, you can teach couple therapy, which would be a beginning. And then you could have communities. Uh, the Harlem Institute is a little bit involved and it mm-hmm. does that. But there are a few where, well, you know, they in fact demand that you get to know the community before you even treat individuals. And myself, I came from sociology, which means non that discipline. It was not social work. Medicine and Psychology, they asked me for a year and a half to do some fieldwork with children, adolescents, like 10, 12 years old. And I had to, for a year, to take them to do things in New York. So to go to the zoo, to go to the museum, to go to the swimming pool. And they were very tough kids. So in a sense, NPAP at that time demanded that I be part of a group so that I could learn the beginning of What it means to interact with individuals rather than coming from academia, which is a different world altogether.
0: Well, I don't
1: think they ask that now. No. That's right. I know there are some institutes that require working in, let's say, in a hospital setting. Yeah. And as you mentioned, I think the Harlem Family Institute has strong ties to the community. Right. This idea of being so isolated is the end result of an overemphasis, I think, in this one-mind psychology, meaning I am observing the inner world of my patient, period. Fantasies, wishes, defenses, resistance. But that seems to be completely dislocated or disconnected from the real world where the patient is positioned. If that is where we come from, then it makes sense that we don't talk that much about community.
2: It doesn't need to be the case, you see. You could work on a one-to-one with patients and focus on their lives, but to get them to think differently and to think of themselves not as isolated individuals between you and me, but as individuals that belong to communities outside. So when they finish their analysis, they are able to say it's not just about me. It's about my contribution to other groups or other cultures. Mm -hmm. So what they have learned from themselves, they can just share and communicate. And I've had patients who have been involved socially as they did their analysis when they realized, my God, it's not just about me, but this has to be taught in the individual therapy so that people have a different understanding of their place in society and their role. Mm
1: -hmm. So my analysis then has the potential of creating in me deeper ways of connecting to others, of relating to others.
2: It has to be taught because we are taught in a way that focuses on you you and me. It's very narcissistic. We are together, we enjoy each other, we complement each other, we are the best in the world, but that's it. (laughs) If you do an analysis where you try to show the patient and put yourself on the line that we represent ideas, ideology, systems that are not just ours, and we transfer them to the next generation, and if we don't think that those systems are worthwhile, or if we don't think that they should be supported, we have to start, you know, thinking differently so that we can change them or help them change them.
0: Couldn't the argument be that referring to the social is a defense against something that an individual doesn't want to actually acknowledge?
2: Yes, you're right. I mean, and the therapist should be able to know that because if it's a defense, it cannot be opened up, it cannot be discussed, it cannot be seen as being impacted personally into somebody's life. If it's a defense, it's not me. It's something outside me. But if you link the social to your own personal beliefs, your own personal feelings, your own personal life, and seeing coming from a middle-class background, what does it mean to you? What does it mean in the way you see things, the way you see people, you see minorities, or you see others? What about race? I mean, we had that discussion before. So it's the same thing. It can be used as a defense, but it depends on the analysis ability to go through the defense and to link it to personally issues of wishes, desire, conflict, contradiction, fears, etc. The fear of the other, the fear of somebody who is different, the desire of different sexual experiences, all of this has to be opened up. In other words, what I'm saying is that we are too comfortable with having a kind of a therapy where we just complement each other. For
0: being such great people. But aren't
2: we? <laughs> man? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't, exactly.
0: Okay. Okay. Catherine, what do you think between your previous and current uh, occupation overlap?
2: there are some overlaps and they are important. As I told you, I came to psychoanalysis through sociology and I have kept both fields active in my intellectual life. But what it seems to me for the moment is that sociologists are willing to open up to psychoanalysis as a system of ideas that they try to integrate. And you see that there are many groups now among sociologists, I belong to several, whereby social issues have to be looked through psychoanalytical questions. The reverse is not true. Psychoanalysis have a much harder time to integrate the social. So there is an imbalance between both fields.
0: Mm -hmm. Why do you think?
2: Because it's much harder. Again, when you deal with a one-to-one therapy or analysis, and you are not taught about the social, how do you possibly know how to integrate the social in your practice? People don't know. They feel, oh, it's a defense. Oh, it's not real. It's not our job. It's not what we learned. In other words, it takes a special effort to ask yourself, how do we integrate the social into our work? Unless it's taught, and now it's taught by feminist uh, psychoanalysts. Benjamin is one. Dimon is another one. Stoller is another one. And they show you how you bring the social in. And of course, Eric Fromm is a major figure where he tells you how to do that.
0: I want to add that that's something we already mentioned uh, before in a previous podcast. In my training in France, the social was already right. very much included in the training. It was to become a psychologist, but with a very strong psychoanalytic orientation. I mean, I want to specify, because some of our audience is not in the US, that some of what we talk about is very United States related and the resistance of psychoanalysis in the US to integrate social aspects in their, their practice and their theories.
2: No, well, you're right. And it's not just the US, it's Anglo-Saxon mentality. Oh, you think so? Yeah, I think the British have the same issue. Even though now, among some of the universities, there is an attempt to change that. Very interesting. Essex in England has a special department just to do that, to integrate the social into analysis. But It is very recent, perhaps 10 years ago. But you're right. Europe is different than uh, Anglo-Saxon. And now the work done by Italian psychoanalysts is fascinating. Work done by Latin American psychoanalysts is fascinating. And we know nothing about them. Why? Because they're not taught.
0: Why do you think? A translation issue or other...
2: I think it takes too much work. You have to start reading them. You have to start thinking about them. You have to start creating you know, discussion group with other people. And then you teach. So it's an investment, and I think that many people don't have the time or the desire or the energy to invest in that way.
0: That's something actually I, that struck me when I um, started my training at NPAP, and I'm sure it's uh, similar in other institutes. As a difference with what I had in France, in France I was taught in the in, in a university with. A professors who were paid a salary to teach. That's
2: different, And so yeah. they had
0: time to read, they had time to think.
2: That's right. And
0: I could really feel that at NPAP, we were taught by people who had their own practice. Right. And basically, it was something they did on the side. Correct. They had no energy and no mm-hmm. probably no possibility financially-wise to Correct. allocate a huge amount mm-hmm. of time to read, deconstruct, etc. It's
2: true. But let me give you a counter-understanding Many people don't want that because we're not bureaucrats. At the university, you get a salary, it's comfortable, you don't have to worry. And a few people take advantage, but other people take advantage in the wrong way that they do very little because they know that they have tenure, they know that they cannot be thrown out, they know that they have a position, and they're not, in a sense, intellectually active. So you have to be careful not to fall into that.
0: I see, yeah. I guess I was lucky enough. It's not either or, it's about and.
2: Yeah, exactly. That's right.
0: I was lucky enough to have mm-hmm. to have had people who were genuinely uh, interested in their work, but it, it's not a given.
2: Exactly. You were lucky. Mm-hmm.
1: You listened to the first of these two installments on an interview with Catherine Silver. We hope that you will be ready for a second podcast that will come out next month. If you have questions, comments, or you would like to reach us, can do that by email or through our page in
0: Facebook. See you then. Until then. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.